Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hola, and welcome to New Books and Latino Studies, a channel within the New Books Network. I am your host, Tiffany Gonzalez, a PhD candidate in history at Texas A&M University. Today on the program, we have Dr. Maria Cotera, an associate professor in the Department of American Culture, an affiliate faculty member in Latina and Latino Studies, and the Department of Women's Studies at the University of Michigan. Dr. Cotera is here to discuss Chicana Movidas, the new narratives of activism and feminism in the movement era published by the University of Texas at Austin in 2018. Her research and writing focus on Chicana feminisms, Latinx studies, U.S. third world feminisms, comparative race and ethnicity, intellectual history, and early 20th century anthropology and folklore. In addition to Dr. Cotera, we also will hear from Marta P. Cotera, a respected Chicana feminist, historian, civil rights leader, author, and Maria's mother. Ms. Cotera is the author of Diosa Yembra, the History and Heritage of Chicanas in the U.S., published by Information Systems Development in 1976, and The Chicana Feminist, published by Information Systems Development in 1977. Marta also wrote a chapter for Chicana Movidas titled Mujeres Bravas, How Chicanas Shaped the Feminist Agenda at the National IWI Conference in Houston, 1977. Hello, Maria and Marta. Welcome to New Books in Latino Studies. It's such a privilege to hear from you both. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Hi, it's great uh, to be here. So to get started, I'm really excited to have you on this channel. Can you tell us a little bit about yourselves, uh, your professional and personal backgrounds? Marta, can you start us off and then Maria will follow? Okay, well, my uh, my start was as, was as a librarian in 1957, an archivist. Uh, but in addition to that, I have... Um, I have worked, well, I have been an activist in the civil rights movement, I guess, since the Viva Kennedy campaigns and the, uh, I guess since before that, but uh, especially Viva Kennedy campaigns when I was at the University of uh, Texas in El Paso. And then uh, later on when I came to Austin, the same with educational reform movement, um, school walkouts, and then the, um, the, the gen, you know, generically civil rights movement with um, working on reforms uh, in every agenda, social justice um, facet, I guess, of the movement. Um, I was uh, one of the founders of Colegio Jacinto Trevino, along with my husband, Juan, and also a founder of Rasamida Party and candidate for office, uh, and uh, returning to Austin, doing a lot of local advocacy work and institution building. So I have a long, long history of activism that just never seems to end. Still very active. Absolutely. And it's remarkable work and it's groundbreaking work that you've done on behalf of social change on behalf of Latinas and Latinos here, not not only in Austin, but I think across the state of Texas. And I know that the city of Austin has named a day after you, which is coming up on August 25th. And that's pretty important for those listening and that don't know that you were and continue to be at the forefront of activism 
and especially with the push for ethnic studies in Texas schools. So it's such an honor to have you on to talk about Chicana Movidas alongside Maria. Maria, can you tell us a little? Yeah, thank you. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, Maria? I can. Um, as you mentioned, I uh, teach at the University of Michigan. I'm the director of Latinx Studies there. Um, that you know, I'm I'm happy to uh, somewhat follow my mother's footsteps, organizing with students to ensure that Latinx issues are being dealt with on all levels at the university. Um, as you mentioned, you know, my interest, my my scholarly interests have really focused on uh, women of color, intellectual genealogies, developments of theories and practices um, that come out of women of color uh, traditions of knowledge making. Um, that also includes methodologies like oral history, um, encuentros, across uh, transgenerational encuentros, archival work. So that's kind of where where I'm situated um, uh, in the academy. Thank you. And your work within the academy is still very much rooted in the activism that you grew up in. Is that correct? Inserting mm-hmm. inserting Latinas yeah. and Latinos and Chicana and Chicana voices, making sure they're represented, making sure they have the resources. For example, one resource that is so important, not resource, but a digital collective memory. And so I want to, before diving into the anthology, I would like Can you speak a little bit about the Chicana Por Mirasa Digital Memory Collective that you and Linda Garcia Merchant started this project years ago in an effort to restore, but also bring Chicana history to the forefront through an alternative platform that decolonizes the archive? How did this project come about, if you can tell us a little bit about that? Yes, thanks for asking about uh, the Chicana Por Mirasa project. Um, As you mentioned, it is a project that was undertaken in collaboration with Linda Garcia Merchant. I think I should mention that Linda, like me, grew up with an activist mother. And in fact, our mothers, uh, Ruth Brea Mojica Hammer, an activist out of Chicago, and my mother uh, really circulated in the same kinds of national activist circles, particularly the National Women's Political Caucus, um, which is the subject of my mother's essay in Chicana Movidas. Um, and so Linda and I grew up around archives and, uh, you know, around 2008, she had just finished this wonderful film on the Chicana caucus in the National Women's Political Caucus. And I had just finished my book, Native Speakers, which was about women of color, anthropologists and folklorists in the early 20th century. And we were both kind of casting about for new projects. And around that time, you know, I think we were both really struck by how all these commemorations were happening, you know, about women's movement commemorations, Chicano movement commemorations. And in these commemorations, Chicanas were so rarely a part of that celebration. And, you know, we had both grown up kind of in the movement, understanding the movement through our mother's uh, eyes and through their experiences and through their network of friends. And so we were in this sort of paradox where it's like Chicanas were absolutely absent in the historiography and in the celebrations, you know, around Chicano movement and women's movement um, mobilizations of the 60s and 70s. And yet we knew that that was an absolutely false narrative. And so part of the reason we started Chicana Por Mi Raza was really as an intervention. You know, we both understood that it, it takes lots of years and lots of money to produce even a documentary film as Linda did. Right. And it takes a lot of time to write a book. We're talking about a decade from start to finish. Right. We did not feel we had the luxury of time. We felt like 
part of the problem was that archival collections and institutions were not collecting um, materials on Chicanas, right? So historians were not writing about them. So then, you know, when it came time to demand that those materials be collected by archives, there was no rationale that could be put forward for why they were important because there, were, there was no historiography. But there could be no historiography if there were no archives, right? So we were looking at this kind of invisibilizing feedback loop that I've written about elsewhere. And we thought, well, what we need to do is create a resource. Uh, we need to create, you know, create the conditions of production for a whole new uh, expression of scholarship for, for, you know, those graduate students and junior faculty who want to write about this period in a way that is inclusive of women. We have got to present the evidence so that nobody can say anymore, you know, yeah, they were there, but I can't remember their names or, you know, kind of just sideline them, right? And so that is why we decided to create this, co this, this digital collection of Chicana archives that now includes over 10,000 archival objects. And we still collect uh, pretty much every summer. We're going to San Diego again this summer and thousands of hours of oral history. Um, just in terms of our methodology, working with students for the most part, we visit women in their homes. We speak to them. We make food with them. Sometimes we drink gin and tonics, sometimes cafecitos, depending on the woman. Uh, they allow us with much generosity uh, to come into their homes and to scan materials that they have in their personal collections. And, you know, we never take materials because so many of these women, my mother included, you know, have worked with scholars before in the past who say they're going to bring, you know, borrow their materials and then never bring them back. And and a lot of, uh, you know, there's been a lot of personal collections that have been raided, right? Tomb raiders. So we, we, you know, we leave the materials in situ, we scan them in situ, and then we collect them digitally so that they can be of use to scholars and teachers. Thank you for that. Thank you for, it's, Chicana, the Digital Memory Collective is so impressive. Just looking at the website and being being able to access the what's going on inside. There's so much, so much great documents that looking over that explains a whole Chicana feminist genealogy, history, knowledge making that is absent within traditional um, archival institutions, right? Just doing my work for my dissertation, you know, that's, that's clear. And, but also that those issues, as you point out to you and Martha have pointed out to is that when the institutional archive doesn't have Chicana or Latina voices, what stories then are being written about or perpetuated and what's being absent and who gets glorified or commemorated within the national scene. And it's, thank you for your work on that. It's, it's something that and that continues to grow. It's not something that is stagnant, as you mentioned. You, you continue to do trips. You're going to San Diego, and in your chapter, you also incorporate your students within this work, and it's allow them to create a different conocimiento, as you called it with Florianza Dua's term. Um, yeah, I mean, just to say a little bit of something, you know, about that. You know, that as I say, necessity is the mother of invention. And, you know, we, we undertook this project with zero resources. And in fact, Linda had a full-time job and she would just take, use her sick hours and her vacation hours to take trips, you know, with no pay and, and you know, very little support. And so we discovered very early on that, you know, we had all this uh, labor in the institution, student labor, not that we were exploiting them. 
they do enjoy it because what we discovered too is that they really responded to this hands-on work of conducting oral histories, of scanning archives, of trying to interpret and understand them with the help of the veteranas we're talking to. And so I, I have discovered, you know, that that students are absolutely energized by this work and they bring an energy that's very special to the scene, right? Because I feel like when we talk to women and they tell us their stories and their students present, women understand what's at stake. That there's something about having that audience of the generation that follows us, right? There in the room and listening and witnessing um, that really uh, brings the stories forth in a very rich way. And so I like to think of it sometimes as like, you know, the, the veteranas we interview and, um, you know, me and Linda are kind of in, uh, uh, between generation, right? And then the younger generation coming up, being a part of that recovery project really creates a kind of multi-generational transit of uh, knowledge, right? Knowledge exchange that is very powerful. So even though we brought students in because we couldn't pay someone to do this work for the most part, that really transformed the project for us, the engagement with students. It, it just took on a whole different dimension. It's very, very powerful. Absolutely. And I see it within Chicana Movidas, the anthology itself. So to switch gears now, can we talk about the anthology? Maria, you have co-editors aside from you, Dr. Meili Blackwell and Dr. Dione Spinoza. How did y'all come together to create the anthology we are discussing today? Can you tell us a little bit about the planning process and what y'all envisioned? Yes. Um, you know, when Linda and I first conceived of the Chicana Por Mi Raza project, we knew absolutely that we had to reach out to colegas uh, like Dion and Meili to talk to them about the project and to bring them into the project, right, and, and as advisors. And, you know, we didn't want anyone to think that we were just using their work and not collaborating with them. So that was a really important touch point. We met in 2011 or 2010, 2011, 2010 in California. Uh, Vicky Ruiz, the historian, was hosted us at Irvine. Um, and we just, you know, developed a relationship with them over time. And, you know, we, Dion and Meili and I began talking about a collection as early as 2013, 2014. And then we decided we'd just see if there was any interest and send out a CFP. And so many people responded that we knew that there was just like a backlog, right, of amazing work that was um, just waiting to be published, right? And so we thought we have a collection here. And um, we're delighted by, you know, the fact that the collection includes veteranas like Marta, Ana Nieto Gomez, uh, Ines Hernandez Avila, Diana Romero, Maria Jimenez, like really important Chicanas. It also includes younger scholars, people who were just still doing their PhDs, uh, you know, when they wrote the pieces, you know, some are pulled from their dissertation research. And then we have a lot of mid-career scholars as well. So it's it's a really multi-generational collection. We're really happy about that. And it does it does a lot to the movement historiography. It breaks down the singular vision of how we've understood the movement, right? It includes gender, race, class, but also sexuality, but also the networks that the women created outside, for example, use Texas. Outside Texas, we have when one essay from Leticia Wiggins where she explains that Martha, because of her role as a librarian, which a lot of movement writing doesn't explain that she had a professional role. Like she was a librarian archivist. Um, 
And her work allowed her to create the networks outside the state that allowed her to create um, relationships with other Chicanas in Indiana, in Illinois, in Wisconsin, but also in California and that, that network that the women built. And it's, I think that's these contributions from the essays in your introduction that really, really shows us a different image of what the movement stood for. Yeah, it's not all Aslan, baby. I mean, <laughs> we were really intentional. And, you know, I have to credit my my collaborators, Yana uh, and May Lee, and May Lee in particular, um, for her insistence that sexuality also be part of that story. Um, you know, and, and just brilliant thinking around that and bringing people in and being very intentional about that, right? But also, this is not just a Southwestern story. This is a Midwestern story. This is a story about the Pacific Northwest. And you're absolutely right. You know, I, I think actually, uh, not to segue into this, but I think Marta's essay, my mom's essay, in fact, illustrates exactly what you're talking about. You know, they, mm-hmm. these broader national networks and how they were consolidated and how they came together um, is a fascinating story. Yeah. Marta, do you want to talk about your essay that you contributed within the volume? Uh, yes. Mine is about, um, well, I don't even know who decided that I was supposed to write about that. It was very tedious. And um, and I remember a friend of mine uh, reading it after right after the book, a younger friend after the book came out. And um, and she leaned across the table from me and sighed. And she said, I read your essay. And I said, yes, I know it was very dense and hard reading. And then she says, oh, yes, I know. And you had to write it. I said, no, I had to do it. Um, I had to do everything that I outlined in that essay. And the essay, I like to say in presentations, was a little bit like describing how to make tamales. It's a lot more fun to make the tamales and to have to describe, you know, the process. Uh, But the essay is about, is an example, an exact example of a movida. You know, we... um, we try to collaborate. We try to incorporate ourselves into the IWY International Women's Year uh, 1977 follow-up conference in the U.S. to set the women's national agenda. So it was a very, very important uh, process, and we could not not stay out of there. And I wanted to very much because I had had it with the women's movement after the National Women's Political Caucus Fracas, you know, and everything that they did to us, the mainstream feminists did to us. But the California women, particularly the um, Illinois women, like uh, Ria Mojica Hamer and um, everybody in Florida, for example, they wanted us, as Texas was the largest state after California, um, to get in there. And so we try to get in the same way. We try to get the Anglo women to open up, to let us in, and they wouldn't do it. We finally got a couple of people in the official committee. And um, so we had some representation in the official committee. But basically, we had to organize a pair, like a lot of other times, we had to organize a parallel group to the official state committee who was planning not only the state conference, but the national conference in Texas. And so we developed that parallel committee, Chicana Advisory Committee, and uh, we did 
amazing work, not only organizing in Texas, but also organizing and helping to organize women in other states uh, or collaborating with women in other states. And I think the important thing, another important thing about the essay is that I had examples of how we uh, collaborated and did a coalition that our coalition brought in, the radical women that we'd always worked with who wanted to protest uh, the conference, but we made them we um, made them an offer, and that is, let's go in together and let's make this a real women's conference. And uh, we also, uh, it, this also enabled us to bring in our lesbian sisters, you know, Latinas and others who were not going, who were not being let into the official committee, but they could work with us. And I have examples of the proposals that the lesbian women submitted, that the radical women submitted, because the purpose of this essay was also to show third wave feminists and theorists, particularly, uh, that uh, we had established networks and coalitions with uh, uh, lesbians, women, with radical women, and um, and these groups uh, included uh, Latinas that were or may not have been involved with a movement, but they were involved with parallel movements and a lot of times involved with us as well. Uh, but with us, they had a chance to participate, whether whereas sometimes in movement activities, you know, they did not have those opportunities. Anyway, that that was a whole purpose. And, and another huge purpose, of course, a uh, major objective was to make sure that the Latina voice was incorporated, uh, that our needs were incorporated into the national federal agenda that was being established for women. Had we not been in there uh, in a real way with massive numbers, the national women's agenda would have been, would have had a conservative outcome, which means no uh, support for the ERA, uh, no support for choice, uh, no support for progressive women's issues. And I think that this is very important because as we reclaim uh, the politics, hopefully in this generation, and our politics become more progressive, uh, we can go back to this history. We have a history within our community of supporting progressive issues for women. So I think we can steal a lot of thunder uh, from people that will claim uh, not to be involved in progressive issues because our community is, quote, traditional, by, by that meaning conservative and not progressive. I digress. I'm sorry. But, um, but I, I hope that, um, that this book uh, was just, the essays were just really amazing. And uh, later on, if we can uh, talk about, I'd like to talk a little bit about Alicia Escalante and, and, and the essay that references her work. I do have a question regarding the, the organization of, each, of the sections of the book and the essays, because Martha, your chapter is under Hallway Movidas. Can we talk a little bit about the Chicana Movidas and the setup? And what does it mean? What are the Chicana Movidas for this book that sets up the theoretical framework and the concept for understanding the interventions being made? Well, if I, yeah, I, I can just briefly say, um, it, Maruka can explain uh, the rationale, but but ours, I think, is a good example of 
of totally a Halloween movie that literally we were doing that. So I'll let her explain. Uh, so the the concept of Movidas really came out of our first uh, meeting as an editorial group, Meili, Dion, and I, when we were trying to think about a thread. We'd already read all the essays that we really wanted to include, and we were thinking, well, what brings them together? And without being too deterministic, right? Um, without trying to leash them all together under a single concept. And Meili uh, shared with us that in her classes, one of the ways she brings all of these different mobilizations together for her students is she asks them to map the different kinds of movidas they're making. And so when she mentioned that, I was recalling and we were we started thinking about Gloria Ansaldúa's uh, intervention where she talks about um, how uh, Chicanas, Latinas, and queer women of color uh, you know, engage in small-scale movimientos, and she juxtaposes that against the big M movements, right, of the second wave or the Chicano movement. Um, and so, and she uses the term movidas, as does Chela Sandoval in her own work. And so we're thinking, you know, there's really something here. And so we started thinking about movidas as a kind of constellation of techniques, technologies, strategies, Right, that are, um, you know, that can range from overt to underhanded, right? And we're thinking about the the, the definition of the word movida in in, La, in Mexicano popular culture, right? It can mean anything from a chess move to a political movida to an underhanded uh, um, to an underhanded strategy to you know some uh, something you got going on the side, right? And so. And and also it was often used to re- reference the Chicano movement, you know, la movida, as opposed to the movimiento. So we thought we could, you know, put a feminist spin on this technique, and that it was flexible enough to capture all of the different ways in which Chicanas had been moving within and against social movements. And I think uh, what's important to note here is that, you know, we we felt very strongly that we needed a concept that could capture the ways in which Chicanas uh, worked to promote, you know, the interests of women or to, 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 to articulate the interests of women within existing social movements, right? So they're, they were not separatists ever. And they were willing to, you know, go engage with the white feminists if they had to, just as Martha uh, talks about in her um essay, you know, in order to advance, right, the, the community, the interest and the needs of the community. Um, and so, you know, when we were thinking about Movidas, we also were aware that Movida has uh, a negative connotation uh, for a lot of social movement veterans, right? Often Movida was used to describe the ways in which, you know, the establishment or the power structure would pull dirty tricks on Chicanos and Chicanas you know, in an attempt to prevent the power structure from changing or being disrupted. And often those dirty tricks were referred to as movidas. And a great example of this can be found in Jose Ángel Gutiérrez's uh, book, uh, Gringo Manual on How to Control Mexicans, right? Where he talks about, he actually lists the different Anglo power structure movidas. He calls them movidas. But we wanted to recuperate the, the term um, for the purposes of this book and to really kind of grasp it and and turn it over and turn it around and um, use it to describe 
you know, everything from the coalitional work that Chicanas did to their transnational imaginaries, to the ways in which they used aesthetic practices to create new kinds of homes that were more welcoming to them. So the movidas are into the ways in which they retrofit memory, you know, the history of uh, women uh, who came before them. So, so all of these kinds of movidas structure how we organize the chapters in the book. Um, and we hope that the readings, uh, you know, have a lot of interesting cross-pollinations uh, through this structure. I believe they do. I mean, just looking at the four movidas that you have introduced the hallway movie that's the homemaking movie that's the movie that's of crossing and the memory movie that's are so powerful for to understanding the political tactics, the struggle, and also the resistance and also the achievements that Chicanas were making during the movement time and the, the ramifications of that, right? The positive ramifications. Cause we have now from the positive ramifications is this book, your work with the Chicana digital memory collective. Right. And so looking through it, you, you have, there's 21 essays, but I see that some of them are, have an author wrote one or two of them. So it's an impressive collection. You have that the conversation expands, right? As I mentioned earlier, it expands us from outside Southwest, move us to the Midwest, the Pacific Northwest, but also different types of Chicana activism. It's not just on the streets protesting, but it's also institutional activism and for an example, Mar Martha's work with the IWI, working with women within these spaces, but also there's a chapter talk or essay talking about um, Chicana radio activism that is so profound because it opens up a new avenue of understanding what labor Chicanas were doing in this movement to promote culture, but also promote Ch Chicana politics, right? So Martha, you said you wanted to talk about Alicia Escalante, do you want to talk about yes, what you wanted to say? Um, and, and I think um, uh, related to that, I am, I am so grateful uh, that Chicana Permigraza is uh, recovering these archives because, you know, women's participation in the movement, uh, both as feminists and uh, those that might not consider themselves feminists, was all about agenda. It was all about policies. It was all about community development. And it was all about uh, making uh, the government that we were paying for dearly and uh, getting a payback on our wage theft that we have had from the beginnings of time by the colonizers, you know, in this country. Uh, getting that payback with re with in return with policy agendas, progressive agenda. And that was our whole purpose. It was never about you know, being in the movement to have a good time, uh, necessarily, although we did. Uh, so, so I, I challenge people to look at these, uh, to look at these essays, uh, with a way to documenting the aspirations of our community for a better country, for a better nation, for better politics. And, and so I, uh, was particularly, Always uh, very impressed with Alicia Escalante's rights, uh, work in um, welfare rights, and with the fact that even uh, progressives within our movement did not understand uh, what she was talking about. And what she was talking about is a very basic human right that is taken away 
from poor women, from low-income women of all colors, you know, but particularly, particularly aimed at uh, low-income women of color. And uh, and that is a premise that Alicia, and I don't know if this is expressed in, in the uh, essay, but I had extensive uh, contacts with Alicia because we were totally supporting her policy agendas with the National Welfare Rights Organization. And her premise was, look, Anglo women generally, especially middle class and upper class, of course, have the the intrinsic right, the right that nobody will take away from them of raising their own children, whether or not they have enough money, you know, in their pockets. Whereas low-income women, especially women of color, are denied this right. This is a right that is denied just simply because you do not have enough money and you have to, and you're forced to go out to work. And this is a very important basic citizenship issue that we should all be concerned with as progressives, which is from the very beginning of times, uh, women of color were not allowed to raise their children. They first had to work. That number one premise was that women of color were meant to work. Then if they had the additional resources, they could maybe take time to go and raise their children, which is an issue that is still today constantly being talked about. Well, especially we don't have any more welfare of any kind to speak of in the in the first place and that we need to get back to that, to where we have uh, guaranteed income so that people, if they choose to have the right to raise their children, you know, themselves, if they choose that right. Uh, And that that should not be a right that only the middle class and especially, you know, now it's primarily white people, but middle class and upper middle class have. Uh, But that that but that premise, that whole thing, uh, policy was set up from the beginning of times in the colonial period is that women of color did not have the right to raise their children, that they were expected to work first and then raise their children second. And that uh, women, white women, are grappling with that with a nanny state in that, you know, nannies are supposed to, you know, raise their children first. And then if there's time, you know, they may get around to providing, you know, for their children. And so I just wanted to say that there's a lot of policy agenda that can be very useful for progressives going forward in this book um, with closed readings. And of course, our own recommendations uh, of the IWY, the Latina Caucus, uh, actually the Women of Color Caucus uh, in Texas and also at the national level has amazing agenda items that that are not neoliberal, they are totally, totally progressive and appropriate for an agenda, you know, a policy agendas today. I agree. And Alicia Escalante's life, as we read within the essay that Rosie Bermudez wrote, is that 
Alicia's life complicates how we understand Chicanas and the issue of family, right? Chicanas are fighting for economical justice, economic policies that support them and benefit them because they haven't been represented in public policy and in politics since the inception of the country. Um, And what you're speaking to is a continual conversation that we see within the news, we see within, even right now with presidential discussions, is where do Latinas and Latinos fit within this larger discussion with of public policy. And it is, I think each essay within this volume is a reminder, but it's also, it's also a tool, a guidance tool of how to continue to create progression, progress for Chicanas, for Latinas, for the Latino demographic as a whole within society in the U.S. There's still tensions and issues that need right. solutions. Yeah. And I think, uh, sorry, I was just going to just add to this little piece on Alicia Escalante. I think that what's so interesting about, there are two essays on Alicia, actually. One focuses more on the Chicana Welfare Rights Organization, um, Alejandro Marchevsky's piece, and that is looking more at coalition and uh, the engagement with, uh, you know, the, the Black women inside of the Welfare Rights Organization. Um, but the other is more a biographical uh, uh, kind of approach to Alicia's life. Um, and I think it is very important to understand that Alicia, you know, in contributing to newspapers like, you know, uh, like, or magazines like the Generacion, you know, oftentimes she was at odds with other Chicanas who did not want her to be defending the rights uh, for welfare moms to claim uh, the right to be uh, stay-at-home moms. Right. Because it wasn't considered feminist. So I think it's the complexities of um, the positions that Chicanas took across the board uh, is really illuminated in in um, it in these essays. I agree. It complicates what complicates what Chicanas politics, what it means to be a Chicana. I mean, there's discussions about identity, but also the feminisms, the stances that the women took, the ideas of feminism, where they stood um, within certain topics. And I think another thing that this anthology does is that it moves us from the national to the international. And I know that was a discussion that was that was had within one essay where I think it's um, the essay from Marisela Chavez, right? Trauma of memory of when she's talking about um, Nancy de los Santos. Am I correct? of how she's capturing the women at the conference. And she knows that there was Chicanas from San Diego to LA and where, where's the memory of that. And so I want to talk about the cover of the book because that is, you want to go ahead and Maria talk about it. Cause that is Nancy. Yes. So there's actually an interesting backstory that connects this all back to the Chicana por mi raza digital memory project. And that is that, you know, we, we interviewed Nancy in, I want to say, 2013, um, because she's a well-known producer, a, a filmmaker and writer and producer. She produced The Bronze Screen and helped write the script for that, which is a documentary on Latinos in um, Hollywood. And we did not know that she was a movement photographer. So when she said she had a few things that she could share with us and brought over three huge boxes of photographs, negatives, uh, and, you know, just a massive collection. I think we have maybe 2,000 objects, photographic objects in her collection. Uh, we saw a treasure trove uh, that documented uh, 
first of all, something that not a lot of people do know about or have written about, but Chicana and Latina activism in Chicago. So she is from Chicago and captured a lot of movement activities in Chicago in the mid-1970s. But then we also found that she traveled to Mexico City to the International Women's Year Conference in 1975. And we knew that Maricela Chavez, who had was a contributor uh, to, uh, to Chicana Movidas, had written about this conference and had and and had um, you know basically been frustrated because the archival record is so slim. And so the minute I saw these images that captured many of the individuals that Maricela wrote about, but she had no archival evidence of them being there, you know, I sent them to Maricela and I said, you have to write about this. You know, we just found the, you know, the piece, the, uh, a missing piece of the puzzle that you wrote about, you know, 10 years ago. And so uh, Maricela decided to write, I would say, more of a philosophical reflection on the absence of evidence and how that doesn't mean that it's an evidence, uh, it's evidence of absence, right? Um, and how encountering these images um, 10 years after the fact, after she first wrote about this in her uh, dissertation, I believe, how powerful that moment of recognition was. Um, Nancy's image that appears on the, on the front cover, I think is a really beautiful image because on the one hand, it's showing how Chicanas, you know, she's, it's a, 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 a self-portrait of her taking a picture of herself taking a picture, right? And so on the one hand, you know, there's a kind of, her face is covered by a camera. So I think it gestures towards that absence in the archival record, but she is taking a picture of it. So she's documenting, actively documenting her own presence in that moment. And so I think, you know, it, it suggests as well that women were there, they were documenting. Um, we just haven't bothered to look, you know. That was well done. The photograph, um, the, the cover photo of her taking a self photo of herself really speaks to, I think, overarching, as you said, the purpose of the book, documentation. Chicanas were there and will continue to be here. I want to talk about your chapter, Maria, that you contributed, that you wrote about the digital turn, because it seems also, it, it seemed like a whole, a cycle, right? You speak about working with your mom on the Chicana Research and Learning Center in Austin at a young age and talk and remembering the tensions, but also how it lost resources or lost financial support during the Reagan years and how that stayed with you. Because now with your digital memory collective, it's, it's, it's building off of what Martha has built on. So do you want to speak about your essay and the digital turn? Yes, I would love to. Thank you for asking. Um, so, you know, my essay is really about the Chicana por mi raza project and, um, how it uh, mobilizes memory at various different levels, you know, to sort of think through what our genealogical connections are and, and to sort of make connections between how Chicanas have always, you know, as Maylee Blackwell puts it, retrofitted memory, used uh, recovered history to articulate political positionalities and a kind of political futurity, right? So, um, at, so one thing that is true for the Chicana por mi raza project that 
is also true for the knowledge projects that Chicanas elaborated in the 1970s. And these knowledge projects include all kinds of things like, you know, Encuentro Femenil, the, the journal, the first Chicana feminist journal. They include, you know, things like the Chicana, the Chicana Research and Learning Center, um, which was a knowledge project uh, that my mother started that was sort of bridging community activism in the university and scholarly production in the university, um, is that they're precarious. They don't last. They're underfunded. They're staffed by people who are doing too many jobs, right? A lot of people put their corazón into these things, but we, we are not, you know, we do not have the resources to make them last, right? So in many ways, they're ephemeral. And this is something that always um, troubles me or haunts the peripheries of the Chicana Por Mi Raza digital archive project, right? Because it has no major funding. It will get no major funding. There have been many attempts. It is just a project that exists at the peripheries of, you know, the both digital humanities and, you know, the scholarly community, because so much of it is engaged with with the community outside the university. And, and you know, and so the precarity of our project reflects the precarity of so many projects that we have recovered and learned about in the process of building the archive. The archive could disappear tomorrow. Right. And so, you know, when thinking about that, you know, I'm also led to reflect on other projects that did disappear, like the Chicana Research and Learning Center. But reflecting back on those projects reminds me that it's a genealogical thread from CRLC to where we are now. So the project didn't the project lost funding in the Reagan years, but it didn't disappear. Right. It is continued in the, the transgenerational memory exchange that you know we have experienced you know both in terms of working for my mother i experienced working for my mother at the chicana research and learning center but also in the project that is the chicana por mi raza project and so i think that we have to start thinking beyond the archive and beyond you know the colonial uh imaginary of the archive as an institution that has permanence right we can't just adopt, you know, colonial and colonizing formations, institutional formations, and match them, right, with our own decolonial content. We actually have to kind of challenge what gives those formations, you know, their colonial power. And we also have to accept that ephemerality may be a condition of our existence, but, you know, maybe permanence is inherently colonizing or colonial. So that's kind of what the essay is thinking about, trying to get us to think beyond the kind of classic understanding of the archive, while at the same time acknowledging that, you know, this material must be preserved and recovered, at least, you know, as much as we can. Absolutely. And also it speaks to when there is exclusion, right, within the institutional archive, Chicanas have to create, have to create alternative forms through, such as your work. The digital, the digital archive, right? And it's it's the movidas that Chicanas have done that if they're not going to be part of the system, what are other ways to challenge that, negotiate that, resist that, be part of that, all at the same time, all at the same time to create something new, to push forth, push forth their their experience for future generations. Agreed. And I think that, you know, what Chicanas, one thing that I think Chicanas have done very well 
is they may not have had the resources to build lasting institutions, but they have, you know, there's a word, a phrase in Spanish, abriendo brecha, like cracking open a space, right, for, for others and, and to kind of keep the conversation, keep the thread going. And so I think, you know, this is one thing, you know, thinking of it not just as a kind of fallback position that we're forced into because we don't have resources, but rather as a technology of power. You know, let's think about that as like, yeah, our, our stuff might not be permanent, but, you know, it can't be value, like the, the how we value it cannot be based on its permanence because that's, you know, in that essay, I think I call that the colonizing trick or maybe it's in another essay, right? You can't be an archive unless you're permanent. Well, you, the, the institutions of power do not give us the conditions for us to be permanent so we can never be an archive, right? So, you know, I, we completely reject that. And we say Chicanas have been making impermanent archives since day one. <laughs> We're still here, baby. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so I have one question. We're coming to the near end of our interview so i have one last question for both of you what projects are you all working on now oh i guess i could answer that let me see well um i've renewed actually renewed my relationship with ut benson that with a new bibliographer so there is some hope that we can continue to uh have a have a home uh for some of the print archives and the other thing that and, and of course, I'm, I'm working very hard on a citizenship paper uh, that is, you know, concepts of uh, citizenship that are rejection of the neoliberal order uh, and how, and I think this is very pertinent, as I said before, to our understanding time immemorial, what our aspirational policies have been. And they have been very humane and they have been very centered on on uh, liberation liberationist policies and i think we we have a new era hopefully with progressive politics that will do that and i think that uh, preserving archives is is an important uh way because i mean and reference point because from that uh base uh, or at that base we can find a lot of of inspiration and aspirations. And, and also people like Alicia, you know, who have pointed the way and said, you know, liberation is liberation after all. And if you want to provide for a community that is free, then everybody should be free, uh, especially with regards to the way they want to interact with the human beings in their family. So I think that um, that's what I see. I see through perhaps the, the work that I'm doing on citizenship, uh, not only uh, theoretical, but also working at electoral politics and, and helping um, grassroots community uh, uh, understand concepts of citizenship that go beyond what we are looking at today in neoliberal policies. And it's encouraging because the new immigrants uh, a lot of times come from nations that have rejected neoliberal policies that have put them into the dire straits that they find themselves in. And so I find it that very encouraging. And the other concrete project I'm working on is a um, 
a, a school, uh, I mean, a museum uh, in, um, in Austin for indigenous and Mexican-American Latino uh, material culture. Uh, so I'm working on a lot of different projects. Uh, but I, I think that, like I said, that, um, that there's a lot to be found uh, in, the, in the archive that uh, Chicana Por Regresa is putting together and that it, it uh, takes, I mean, it's an important, important resource that cannot be overstated uh, for our future in more progressive politics. And I also wanted to say, because Maria might, might want to talk about it, is that uh, we have, or she has been, they have been successful in placing material archives in different institutions and and I think that's um, that's an effort that is definitely worth pursuing. Yeah, well, uh, you know, every time I hear my mom talk about what she plans to do, I get tired. Um, but <laughs> he, she's amazing, a force of nature. Um, in terms of Chicana por mi raza, we continue to build the archive. We just partnered with uh, some scholars, uh, uh, Tessa Cordova, actually. Um, out at in uh, New Mexico to uh, start a digital history project around Enriqueta Vasquez, very important Chicana uh, feminist out there in New Mexico, very important to the Chicano movement, um, and to possibly so the the project would be recovering both her uh, substantial archive and digitizing it, and also moving that archive into the University of New Mexico Special Collections. Um, but also her circle of feministas and activists. And so doing oral histories there, that project is getting launched this year. Um, I'm working on a book. Uh, oh, and I should say, I've also started a little mini project with Ana Nieto Gomez. We are hoping to publish her collected writings along with uh, um, some work excerpts from a memoir she's working on from the movement years. Uh, and to, to have a kind of hybrid text that includes her writing, her feminist writing, and also her own kind of memory work um, around that writing uh, that contextualizes it. Uh, that book we hope to publish um, in a couple, you know, in a year or so, actually, because a lot of it is ready to go. It's already been put together. And I'm hoping to follow that up with something from my mother's writing. But that's something she and I will have to talk about. I don't want to volunteer her yet. Um, and finally, I'm, I am working on a book uh, on the Chicana Por Mi Raza project that looks at the connections between, you know, the work that we're doing with Chicana Por Mi Raza and Chicana knowledge projects. Uh, right now, the, the chapters include Maria Varela's work with the Chicano Press Association, work that has been largely unacknowledged and unknown. Uh, Marta Cotera's work as an information scientist um, and her, uh, you know, use of information as a praxis of freedom. Uh, Ana Nieto Gomez and Chicanas in California, the early years, their involvement in the early years of Chicana feminist studies between 1969 and 1976. Um, and finally, Nancy de los Santos's photography. So those are the four chapters of that book. And I'm kind of right in the middle of it right now. Hopefully it will be done at some point in the future. <laughs> it will. It will. If anything, this conversation that we just had about the projects y'all are working on, it's a reminder that Chicanas don't stop working and being a Chicana is not for the weak, right? 
<laughs> we continue Chicanas continue to do work. So, right. so I'm eager to hear more about your work as it progresses. And Marta, I'll continue to speak with you, but I know I'm going to see you on the news of what you're doing in Austin across Texas. Cause I see it almost every other week and you don't stop working. <laughs> so I want to sincerely thank you for sharing your time, your knowledge with everyone listening and for being on the show today. It was great talking to you, Tiffany. As Igualmente. Always. Thank you. So thank you for listening to this episode, which featured Dr. Maria Cotera, co-editor of Chicana Movidas, The New Narratives of Activism and Feminism in the Movement Era, published by the University of Texas at Austin in 2018, and Miss Marta Picotera. If you want to send me a message, you can find me on Twitter, and I encourage you to share this episode with fellow podcast listeners. Hasta la próxima. Hasta luego. Hasta luego.